David Barsamian, producer and host of Alternative Radio. You're listening to CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. The International Energy Agency released a report that has shown that maintaining our current fossil fuel economic system guarantees a six degree centigrade rise in Earth's temperature before 2050. Just a two degree rise will leave dozens of the world's coastal megacities flooded and nearly half a billion more people will suffer water scarcity. At three degrees, Southern Europe will be in permanent drought and the area burned annually by wildfires in the United States will sextuple. And at least in the United States, budgets for scientific research on climate disruption are being slashed to the bone. That's Dar Jamel, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Dar Jamel on climate disruption. Ralph Nader points out the term climate change is a vast understatement and does not convey the gravity of what we are facing. He says climate disruption is more accurate. Study after study, report after report, make it abundantly clear that human activity is transforming our planet. With heat waves, droughts, wildfires, floods, melting ice sheets, and rising sea levels, millions of people will be at risk. But the fossil fuel industry, with its insatiable hunger for profits, continues its assault on the earth. It has an ally in the president who claims to have a natural instinct for science. He also asserts any and all weather events are used by global warming hoaxers to justify higher taxes. Note that he asked for and obtained approval to build two sea barriers to protect his golf resort in Ireland from rising water. Our guest today is Dar Jabel. He's an award-winning independent journalist and author of Beyond the Green Zone, The Will to Resist, and The End of Ice. He spoke at Powell's Bookstore in Portland, Oregon. And now, Dar Jamel. This book really started back in 1995, which was the first time I went up to Alaska and uh, saw Denali. It was in September. It's often a cloudy and sketchy weather around Denali as the mountain makes its own weather. And I hiked up this short peak uh, towards the front of the park. And literally right then, the clouds parted, and I got this little short, few-moment glimpse of the mountain. And the second I saw it, it was love at first sight. Uh, I just saw the heights, and it, it wasn't about conquering a mountain or any of that nonsense. It was about just, I want to be up there. I want to be up there with that place, with that energy. And so I, it was like a tractor beam started, and I... Uh, actually was working out in the middle of the Pacific at that time of my life and started uh, getting myself ready to get into mountaineering, getting the kind of gear that I was going to need, and moved up to Alaska a year later and got into mountaineering uh, very, very promptly. This was 1996, but of course already profound impacts of climate change were already evident. Uh, I was the I joined the mountaineering club, and we would go to the Matanuska Glacier a couple of hour drive outside of Anchorage, for the early season ice climbing festival in the fall. 
and uh, you could drive to the glacier, and then there was a small parking area, and then walk up on the glacier. Well, each succeeding year, that walk got longer and longer as the glacier receded further and further. And it, it, it became so extreme that at one point the parking lot was even moved closer up to the glacier, buying another year or two of a shorter walk, and then, of course, the same thing kept happening. Other evidence, uh, extremely warm temperatures when they should not be happening up there, as well as going through more than one holiday season with literally no snow on the ground in Anchorage, Alaska. So the, the impacts, even in the mid to late 90s, were already very, very obvious. But what also happened during that time was mountains and spending time in them, that really became my sanctuary, and it really became my way of really maintaining perspective as things on the planet kept spinning faster and faster out of control. I could always rely on going into the mountains and finding my, my center and remembering my place in things and, and really tapping back into the earth. So for me, it really is a very, very, very personally intimate experience to go spend time up in the mountains like that. It's deeply meaningful to me, and it, it is a sort of church for me. And, and I look at different alt, uh, mountains almost like altars where I go to pray and also to listen. Then fast forward to 2013, I was living in Doha, Qatar, working for Al Jazeera English, writing feature stories about climate change, and I had been doing so for a couple of years at that point. And I wrote uh, an article where I interviewed several climate scientists, and it was really a big-picture overview of how fast things were moving along as far as permafrost thawing, methane releases in the Arctic, uh, parallels to what, was, what we had already ge geoengineered on this planet compared to the chains of events that set in motion the Permian mass extinction 252 million years ago. And it was a big picture article and it was really the first time that I connected all the dots from what happens if this feedback loop goes nonlinear? What happens in the Amazon when the temperature hits three degrees C? What happens uh, in other parts of the globe when, when things keep spiraling out of control? And I really got the gravity of the situation. And it really struck me how far along we already were. The title of the article was, Are We Already Off the Climate Precipice? By the time you finished it, the resounding answer was a clear yes. And I bring that up because for me, it really, that was the first time I, I faced the overwhelming grief and uh, psychological distress that comes up I think in anyone really watching closely what's happening to the planet, especially those of us who feel a deep connection to certain parts of it. And uh, I went into a big depression for several months. I didn't really know what to do with this information. My fight or flight response kicked in, but uh, how do you flee the planet? It's a little, little challenging. So I just, I struggled and I languished and then I just kept writing climate change stories and I have continued to do so uh, to this day. But uh, along the way, I slowly but surely uh, started to find my way to find a kind of balance in doing that, which I'll get into a little bit later. And also along the way, I kept thinking about Denali and what was happening up in Alaska to that place in particular that I, I have always loved so much. 
So I want to walk you through four places that I visited and introduce you to some of the truly amazing scientists that I had the, the, the privilege of going out into the field with. You know, these are people, most of them have dedicated their entire lives to studying this part of the planet that they love so much. And uh, the first subject I want to talk about, obviously, glaciers. So uh, I went to Glacier National Park in Montana. And there I met Dr. Dan Fagri. He's a USGS research ecologist and is a, the director of the Climate Change and Mountain Ecosystems Project, as well as being the lead investigator of the USGS Benchmark Glacier Program, uh, which is a program measuring mass balance of glaciers around North America and has been doing so for decades. And Dr. Fagri has been working in Glacier National Park since 1991. Um, he's someone that you meet him, and despite his really incredible credentials and, and having been quoted predominantly and consistently in a lot of international media talking about what's happening to alpine glaciers around the world, as well as in Glacier National Park, uh, he's extremely amiable. I, I, he invited me straight into his office in West Glacier uh, National Park entrance, and I met him on a nice sunny day. Uh, a bit hotter than it, it should have been, of course, that summer. As usual, it was a, another summer in Montana of record-breaking heat, record-breaking wildfires, and they were feeling it. But he welcomed me warmly and was very amiable, as I said, and said, come on, let's hop in my car. We're gonna, I'm going to take you up the Going to the Sun highway up to Logan Pass and, and show you some of the deep impacts that, that are already happening here. During that uh, ride, we talked at length uh, before getting back to his office, and I want to just read you a short section of part of one of those conversations that came up when he was really relating to me how dramatic things were changing in, in, in the park that he loved so much. Quote, This is an explosion, a nuclear explosion of geologic change, Fagri tells me, describing the impact of climate disruption while we look out across the valley together. This is unusual. It is incredibly rapid and exceeds the ability for normal adaptation. We've shoved it into overdrive and taken our hands off the wheel. He takes me to stand in another area of slush. Now, this is up on top of Logan Pass, uh, and it's very, very hot. Everything's melting out, and there's a lot of mud. The people who built the Logan Pass Road had to deal with a glacier here, right here, he says, pointing down to our feet. Now there is no glacier. To underscore his point, Fagri tells me that this year they had 137% of their normal snowpack, and two days earlier it was already below normal for this time of year because of the heat. Quote, we had a snowfall up here recently that needed, needed to be plowed, he says, smiling, and it melted before they could plow it. I ask him if that kind of thing is what keeps him up at night. He tells me these are nonlinear changes that aren't based on a simple proportional relationship between cause and effect. They are usually abrupt, unexpected, and challenging to predict. Quote, the aggregate of multiple nonlinear changes is enormous in orders of magnitude, and that's what keeps Dan Fagri worried at nights, he says. After a pause to let all that sink in, Fagri goes on to explain that the Earth has a resilient system that has been through much worse than what we've caused. Ice ages, volcanism, etc. 
So many of these things will recover, he says, of the glaciers and forests that are vanishing before our eyes, but not in a time frame that includes humans. We return to the car and continue driving down the other side of the pass. We roll down our windows and neither one of us talks for a while. I know it's a sensitive topic to bring up with scientists and most of them avoid it at all cost, but I decide to ask Fagri what it is like for him personally to watch the glaciers vanish before his eyes. It's like being a battle-hardened soldier, he says, but on a philosophical basis, it's tough to watch the thing you study disappear. Thank you, it's been a pleasure. I watch him drive for a couple of silent moments, then I look out across the valley and listen to the waterfalls as they stream down toward the river far below us. Glacier National Park, uh, back in the late 1800s, had 150 glaciers. Today it has 26. Uh, when there were 150 glaciers, they cov covered roughly 150 square kilometers. Today they cover less than 15. Uh, according to Fagri, they will probably all be gone by 2030, just 11 years from today. This kind of thing is happening around the world. He's one of many scientists studying glaciers who predicts that there will be no alpine glaciers left anywhere on Earth by 2100. They are going away, and they are going away fast. He described them as the canary in the coal mine. If you want to see what is happening with climate change, look at what's happening with glaciers and uh, dramatic impacts on ecosystems as they disappear. And for humans, at least 250 million people today rely on them solely for drinking water. It's literally their only source of drinking water. And as far as agriculture, one example I can give, the Hindu Kush Himalaya region is the location of several of the largest rivers in Asia, which provide drinking water and irrigation and other uses for 1.5 billion people. So again, as these glaciers vanish, think about the implications for us, uh, for food supply and for drinking water around the world. And of course, even right here in Portland and up where I live in Washington State, where a significant portion of our drinking water does come from glaciers and certainly irrigation for farming, you can imagine the consequences of vanishing glaciers in the future. Finally, on that topic, uh, a recent study came out and showed that there's been a six-fold increase in the amount of melting happening in the Antarctic just since the 1970s. So everything is accelerating, and when we talk about the Antarctic ice sheet, uh, this is the single largest ice sheet on the planet, and we're talking about immense levels of sea level rise which brings me to the next uh, topic and chapter that I'd like to visit with you. So obviously for sea level rise, the, for me, the clear place to go in the United States was South Florida. There's also, along with dramatic impacts that are already very, very visible, there's some of the leading sea level rise experts in the world. I got to meet with Dr. Ben Kurtman, who's also an IPCC author, IPCC being Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and he's at University of Miami there. And he talked to me about the worst-case IPCC predictions for sea level rise, which at that time was approximately one meter of sea level rise by 2100, but then also talked about, right when I had visited him, had talked about the uh, NOAA, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, 
they had predicted a worst case of eight feet sea level rise, which they had just increased to 8.5 feet sea level rise by 2100. So again, you know, another consistent trend that we've seen with these IPCC predictions in, or projections into the future is they have to consistently be upgraded to keep a pace with the reality and the new data coming out from the field. So I had spoken with him, and then afterwards I went and met with Dr. Harold Wanless, and he's also a sea level rise expert at the University of Miami. Uh, Dr. Wanless is the professor and chair of the University of Miami Department of Geological Science. He has a BA in geology from Princeton, an MS in marine geology from the University of Miami, a PhD in earth and planetary sciences from Johns Hopkins, so he's extremely well positioned to provide a holistic view of climate disruption and specifically sea level rise. And so I want to read a short bit about uh, my first meeting with Dr. Wanless. Now in his 70s, he's been tracking sea levels throughout his storied career. We sit down at a table in his office covered in books and folders. I notice photos of a trip to the Greenland ice sheet on the wall. I begin to tell him that I had just met Dr. Ben Kurtman and Bruce Mowry, the then city engineer of Miami Beach, and learned about their perspectives on sea level rise when he interrupts me. We screwed ourselves, he says. We kicked the bucket. We've gone off the cliff. 93.4% of global warming heat that we've produced is now in the oceans, and half of that went in since just 1997. That is unbelievable. If we'd only gotten hold of this when we knew about it in the 80s, we'd have less than half the problem we have now. Wanless, who has been watching things go from bad to worse for so long, is taken aback by the business-as-usual mindset of the general public. We have to stop doing this, he continues, with populations increasing, with industrialization ongoing, and with the sad exuberance about opening the Arctic as an opportunity to get more oil and gas, shouldn't we be thinking Oh my God, what have we done? He goes on to talk with me at length in his office about Greenland and the Western Antarctic ice sheet and how he really can't see us uh, seeing anything less than 10 feet of sea level rise by 2100. And he thinks we could also see, which is uh, according in agreement with a report by former NASA scientist uh, James Hansen, that we could even see 10 feet of sea level rise by 2050. Uh, he talks to me about Turkey Point, the nuclear power plant just south of Miami, and how Miami's uh, thin lens of drinking water that the entire city is relying upon uh, at high risk of being contaminated by salt water in the not-so-distant future as seas continue to uh, elevate. I want to read a brief interaction that Dr. Wanless and I had as, we, uh, as I was getting ready to leave his office. I know that Wanless and Kurtman are friends and have worked together. Wanless has nothing but positive things to say about Kurtman and his work, but as our time together comes to an end, he offers his one critique. He says we have to fix this, Wanless says. I tell him we can't undo this. How are you going to cool down the ocean? We're already there. As if to underscore everything he has shared with me, Wanless leaves me with one more piece of data. In the past, atmospheric CO2 varied from roughly 180 to 280 parts per million ppm 
as the Earth shifted from glacial to interglacial periods. This 100 ppm fluctuation was linked with about a 100-foot change in the sea level. Quote, every 100 ppm CO2 increase in the atmosphere gives us 100 feet of sea level rise, he says. This happened when we went in and out of the Ice Age. I recall that since the Industrial Revolution began, atmospheric CO2 has increased from 280 to 410 ppm. That is 130 ppm in just the last 200 years, I say to him. That is 130 feet of sea level rise that is already baked into Earth's climate system. He looks at me and nods grimly. Next, I would like to take us to the Amazon rainforest where I had the deep privilege of getting to go to Camp 41 with Dr. Thomas Lovejoy. He has been working in the Amazon since 1965. Uh, he's been director of the World Wildlife Fund in the U.S. for 14 years and is often referred to as the godfather of biodiversity and has served numerous very, very prestigious positions because of his work. And it was uh, very interesting getting to ride, you know, someone of this stature uh, and ride in a Jeep with him out to Camp 41 down these extremely rutted, very, very rough roads into the Amazon, you can imagine, with drivers who were also scientists working at his camp. And uh, a very, very long, extremely bumpy, um, uh, making for a very, very sore back for everyone by the time we arrive there. We finally get to Camp 41. He made it a point to get there first. He walked, we parked the Jeeps. He walked down this uh, this little thin trail down through the rainforest down to camp. And then he stood right where the trail opens up into the camp. He stood right there and waited as uh, myself and uh, three Jeep loads of other people from around the world that had been invited to the camp uh, walked down the, the path. And he literally stood there and looked each one of us in the eye and shook us in the hand and gave us the most sincere greeting and warm welcome and, and thanking us for coming because he deeply loved this place and wanted to share it with each one of us. And it was deeply meaningful to him that we all went to the links we needed to to get there. And he made it a point to personally welcome us. And I was very, very moved by that because it was also, to me, a display of the reverence that he has for this place that he has dedicated his entire life to studying and protecting. And I would like to read uh, a little bit of statistics about uh, the Amazon to give you an idea more of uh, the, the grandness of this place. It's the largest rainforest in the world, and it's a system dominated by water, generating half its own rainfall and holding 20% of all the world's rivers within its borders. It covers an area two-thirds the size of the contigu contiguous 48 United States. There are more than 1,100 tributaries of the Amazon River alone, with 17 of them longer than 1,000 miles apiece. The rainforest also creates flying rivers, as one person put it to me, massive streams of airborne moisture that develop above the canopy and move with the clouds and rainfall patterns across South America. While it is well known for being the largest rainforest on Earth, the Amazon is perhaps, perhaps best known for its biodiversity. There are thousands of species of trees, an estimated 2.5 million species of insects, 
thousands of species of birds and at least 3,000 species of fish in the Rio Negro alone. And new species are being discovered all the time. According to a recent report, 381 new species were discovered in 2014 and 15, with a new species discovered every two days. One scientist I spoke to had been uh, to a remote area of the jungle where they had discovered more than 80 new species, including birds, fish, crabs, and insects, during a single trip that was less than a month long. And so why should we care so much about the Amazon Aside from the incredible biodiversity, and and I think most people here understand how important that is for us to maintain that for our own existence, it plays a massive role in the global climate system of sequestering carbon from the atmosphere. Uh, There's so many trees, so much vegetation there, and such rich, dense forest along with all of the rivers that it annually pulls down enormous amounts of carbon from the atmosphere and sequesters it. However, things are changing dramatically fast there. The amount of drought, wildfires, and of course human encroachment, uh, the amount of rainforest being chopped down is staggering. They're putting in cattle pastures because it's a giant cash crop for the beef. And so all of these things together are uh, uh, literally strangling the Amazon and putting it in in grave, grave danger. And so it's, it's, these changes are impacting it so fast now that there's been periods in the last few years where instead of being a carbon sink that literally is pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere, it has become a net carbon producer. And as global temperatures continue to increase, uh, there will be uh, a threshold crossed where literally the vast majority of the Amazon will be lost simply by the escalating temperatures. And then, of course, that becomes yet another feedback loop that is feeding carbon back into the system and speeding up climate change instead of having the opposite, uh, opposite effect that it's always had. And I want to close this section by reading uh, a little bit of uh, a conversation that I had with Dr. Lovejoy. There are reasons other than moral concerns for protecting the Amazon, including self-interest. Quote, we go to the doctor and the pharmacy, and we have no clue where our drugs came from, Lovejoy says. More of that is than we realize. Lovejoy mentions a poison found in the Amazon that led to the production of the pharmaceutical Captopril, which in turn became one of the first ACE inhibitors and is now used by hundreds of millions of people to control their blood pressure and heart conditions. Captopril widens blood vessels, making it easier for the heart to pump blood through them. Most of the people taking it have no idea that this drug, that this drug responsible for their health is from the Amazon. He mentions another example, a vine found by indigenous people there. When they threw it in a lake, all the fish came to the surface grasping for air, which made their fishing much easier. The name of the substance that causes this is curare. It is used today as a muscle relaxant during major abdominal surgeries. His point is that if we continue to destroy the Amazon at our current pace, we may never know how it could help save millions or possibly billions of human lives in the future. Lovejoy believes that this is one of the least appreciated aspects of biodiversity. The Amazon is a gigantic library of the life sciences, which is continually acquiring new volumes, he says. We are discovering new species of birds all the time. And wrapped up in all of that 
is incredible adaptation capacity. It's important to remember each species represents a set of solutions to a set of biological problems, and any one of those can turn out to revolutionize how we understand biological science. Lovejoy pauses and gazes admiringly at the jungle surrounding the camp, then turns back to me. We are so stuck on ourselves, we don't think we need any of it, he says. We think we are some godlike thing. The last place I'd like to take you to this evening is the Great Barrier Reef and to Guam. I went to, these are two of the areas that I went to uh, researching what's happening to coral around the planet. Coral is extremely important, I think, for obvious reasons. Uh, it's uh, like the Amazon, actually. A lot of our pharmaceuticals come from coral. It is a mainstay for fish and in island regions and places like Indonesia. It provides a large percentage of people's protein needs who live and fish and survive off of these reefs, uh, as well as the biological uh, effects that it, it plays in the oceans. So the first place I went to was Guam, and I had the privilege of meeting another amazing scientist there, Dr. Lori Raimondo. Uh, Raimondo is a professor at the University of Guam uh, and works at the University of Guam Marine Lab as a coral ecologist and has lived in Guam since 2004. She, has, she told me that from a little kid, uh, her first time in the water, she knew she wanted to study uh, biology and the oceans and quickly became turned on the coral and has been studying it basically ever since. Just like these other scientists, she talks about it and her eyes light up and you can tell it's, it's her real love and her way of really connecting in to the planet to the point where her research is taking her to even become co-author of the 2016 Paris Climate Agreement. That agreement, uh, for those who don't know, it's a non-binding agreement signed by 195 member countries of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change with the goal of limiting planetary warming to below 2C above pre-industrial levels with an effort to limit that increase to 1.5C. And I got to meet with her about what was happening uh, to the reefs in Guam. Like many reefs around the world in the last few years, we're seeing dramatic coral bleaching events. Uh, coral bleaching occurs when essentially, so corals have their color by different color algae that are there where the coral gets its, uh, its, its nutrients and its protein. As, but that algae and that system only survives in a certain temperature range. If temperatures get too high out of that range and stay there, the algae becomes toxic and so the coral ejects it so it doesn't get poisoned. And that's when it bleaches, it literally turns bone white. If the water cools down in time, usually in less than three to four weeks, that coral can take those nutrients back in, get its color back and live. But what's happening now with the dramatic warming of the oceans is that most of these coral bleaching events are, they're, they're not cooling back down in time and we're seeing devastating consequences. You're listening to Dodge Jamel on climate disruption. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can order copies of this program by calling 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. 
So I'd like to read a brief passage about my time with uh, Dr. Raimundo. She's been monitoring water quality, coastal development, overabundance of crown of thorns starfish that can decimate reefs, and overfishing over the last decade. These have all caused coral loss, but these elements have stabilized. Quote, but warming water has all of a sudden exploded, she says, and the bleaching in the history of anyone looking at this, we've never had bleaching events as severe as the last couple of years. Raimundo sees the massive problems besetting Guam's reefs as a confluence of two large bleaching events in a row, followed by low tide exposure of corals for successive months, then a coral disease outbreak in 2016. We don't know how many populations that affected, but there are at least two that we know a disease just wiped them out in one week, she says. We don't know what causes a lot of these. Some flare up, the coral gets stressed, maybe from heat, and something that wasn't necessarily a problem then becomes a problem. She says that warmer waters over longer periods could very well bring more disease-carrying bugs in addition to causing bleaching or at least extend the lives of the bugs and their ability to damage the coral, but this still requires a lot more research. Meanwhile, the water continues to warm at an astonishing pace, and at least in the United States, budgets for scientific research on climate disruption are being slashed to the bone. After meeting with Dr. Raimundo and another scientist in Guam, I went to the Great Barrier Reef, and I got to meet with John Rumney. He's a, a salty American waterman who moved to Australia decades ago, and he's been diving the Great Barrier Reef for more than 40 years. And he, he and a marine scientist, an Australian named Dean Miller, founded a group called Great Barrier Reef Legacy with their sole goal of trying to find a way to get as many scientists as possible out onto the reef to watching what happened and study, watching what was happening and study it because they were very, very concerned about the rapidity uh, with which the bleaching and other problems were besetting this reef that they love so much. I'm going to read now a couple of pages about my uh, experience with both he and Miller as we went out onto the reef. Miller, Romney, and I pull on our full-length black bodysuits, which will protect us from any poisonous box jellyfish that happen to be in the water. Donning mask and fins, we slip in. Miller takes off with his camera in one direction, while Romney and I head out together in another. This area, the St. Crispin Reef, on the outer edges of the Great Barrier Reef, is approximately 10% bleached. Romney points out areas that are nothing more than fields of tall, dead, staghorn coral, meters and meters of the dead slime-covered remnants of once colorful and vibrant corals. We swim back to areas that are alive and thankfully still doing well. Giant clams with iridescent blue streaks, yellow butterfly fish, gleaming parrotfish, and a myriad of other shimmering reef fish hover and swim above glowing anemone, light brown brain corals, and other multicolored hard corals. After a few dives down to 15 feet to swim parallel to the coral heads and fish, we surface. Rumney pulls his mask up. He's crying. I love this reef with all my heart, he says. After about an hour, we climb back into the boat, which then takes us a short way to the site Rumney refers to as Snow, S-N-O, which is right near the outer reef. He's excited to get in the water. This area used to be at 110% wellness, he says, smiling as he pulls on his gear. I know that's not real scientific to say that, but we used to have life growing atop life here, 
but this area was also impacted last year, so I'm curious to see what condition it's in today. We slip into the clear water, snorkel a short way over to the shallower reef area, and I'm taken aback by the decimation. At least half the coral is already dead, covered in slime algae, or bleached white. At one point, I swim for five minutes straight and see nothing but dead or bleached coral. I look over at Rumney. He had raved about this spot, but I'm unable to find an area that isn't, at least in part, bleached, dead, or covered in algae. Even the deeper areas, many of which remain largely intact, still have signs of bleaching. During a visit to the reef in 1996, I'd taken part in a scuba diving trip, which found me diving 20 times over multiple days across the reef. Compared to what I'd seen then, there was notably less coral in many areas, as in Palau, and far fewer fish. I swim on. The coral scape still holds an austere beauty. Fill in the vibrant colors and add myriad fish of all species and sizes, and you'd have what it used to be. I swim along in dismay. The odds are low I'll return to Australia anytime soon, and since it is unlikely to survive another 13 years, I am effectively saying goodbye to the Great Barrier Reef. Back on the boat, Miller says, it's at least half gone, even way out here. We eat lunch while the boat motors to the third site, which Rumney refers to as Mojo. I slip into the water alone, just wanting one-on-one time with the reef. Thankfully, this site is in comparatively good shape. The colors of the coral shimmer, schools of fish abound. Giant underwater islands of coral stretch tens of feet towards the surface, with coral growing atop coral, life growing on life. Giant blue stag coral grow straight out of 10-foot-wide brown table coral. It is stupendous. The water crackles with the sounds of fish biting coral and the clicking sounds of shrimp. Yet even here I come across dead zones. As I enter one, my surroundings fall silent. The bottom holds larger swaths of long-dead stag coral covered in slimy, deep brown algae. Conscious that my time on the reef is limited, I swim out of the dead area and find another vibrant area. I stay there alone, soaking it all in. I feel time slipping away. Giant clams, anemone, table corals growing atop table corals, sponges, starfish, hard and soft corals, all the colors of the spectrum fill the water. My heart swells and I never want to leave. I dive down deep, holding my breath as long as I can until I become lightheaded, then surface again for more air. I do it again, swimming down 20, 30, 40 feet in places, equalizing my ears as I dive two, three, four times as I swim downward so I can be among the coral, the bigger fish, and the occasional reef shark. I get to be part of their world for those rare, precious, magical moments. Finally, I hear the faint sound of the horn from the boat signaling us to return aboard so we can head back to land. By the end of that year, 2017, that bleaching event that I was witnessing firsthand, some scientists said the Great Barrier Reef was damaged beyond repair and could no longer be saved. Others declare the reef to be in its, quote, terminal stage. A plan by the Australian government to protect the reef was deemed no longer achievable. The year 2017 ended up being the hottest year ever recorded for Earth's oceans, making that year and the the four before it the top five hottest years on record. Since then, last year again became the warmest year for for the oceans. So that year, 2017, at the end of that bleaching event, 30% of the Great Barrier Reef had died. 
Next year saw, 2018, saw another coral bleaching event that killed 20% of the reef. So in two years, 50% of the Great Barrier Reef, the single largest coral ecosystem on the planet, 1,400 miles long, uh, died. That is how fast things are happening. Incredibly, uh, last June, I met a man named Stan Rushworth, and he's an elder and uh, of uh, Cherokee descent. And uh, Stan started talking to me about uh, ideas of healing ourselves and healing parts of the planet. And he shared a story with me, and I'd like to uh, share it with you as a way to start concluding this talk. And it's a story that came from his elder, a man named Daryl Wilson of the Pitt River Nation of Northeast California. And it's a story about uh, something that occurs in Mount Shasta, which the uh, Daryl Wilson's people call that mountain Akuyet. And in Akuyet is a small but extremely powerful spirit called Mis Misa. And the story, the generalities of the story are that Mis Misa is singing and that uh, Mis Misa sings so that when the, the giant canoe paddle of wonder and awe is, is, is pulled through the universe, that that singing keeps the earth in alignment with the sun and the universe and everything in proper alignment, keeps the seasons happening at the right time, and it, it keeps balance on the planet. And what's important about this singing is the other component of it is pe there needs to be people to listen to the song. And the people that go up Akuyet must go with the right intention and uh, have their own lives in order in a way that they can really listen and hear, hear this singing the right way. And if there's nobody there to listen and if people stop listening, then Mis Misa will stop singing. And if that happens, everything on the planet will, will um, become imbalanced and literally life on earth will be threatened. When I heard that song, I realized that is why I always go to the mountains. And that's why when I saw Denali back in 1995, I, I got the message directly from the planet. This is, this is where you're going to go to listen. And so I have r literally changed my life at many different parts, uh, of many, many points in time, to arrange it so that I could maximize my time in the mountains. And hearing that story, I really understood, okay, that is, that is where I go to listen. And so what do I do now with all of the information in this book? And, and what do we do with the devastation that's happening to the planet? And as we are now well into what I refer to now an era of loss. And what I can just share with you is how I live and how do I balance all of this with, you know, this work and, and looking at all of this and being aware that this is happening and I've learned it, it's become very important for me to learn how to say goodbye to things, to species as they go away, to parts of the planet that I know that I'm never going to get to see again, whether they be glaciers or forests or rainforests, uh, learning how to grieve and grieve in community on a regular basis and loving those close to me rightly and loving the earth rightly. I've learned uh, even more deeply the importance of savoring what is here right now today. So, for example, if I'm writing a climate dispatch and had very intense things that would hurt my heart, 
I would literally go out and stand in the trees outside of my house and just watch them sway in the wind and just feel that comfort and that knowledge that came, well, okay, if, if you're still here, I can still be here too and, and get comfort and recenter that way. And then, of course, going up into the mountains. And another thing that has helped me a lot uh, instead of, you know, feeling self-pity and fear and regret and shame for uh, playing whatever role I have in allowing this to happen to the planet I've shifted that with another thing that Stan reminded me of, which is in indigenous cultures uh, in this country, uh, they didn't believe in human rights. They believed they had obligations. They believed they had obligations to future generations, and they believed that they had obligations to the earth. And so for me, I feel that no matter how bleak and how hard things look, and they look extremely bad, even the potential of our entire species going extinct is now on the table. It could happen. And no matter how bleak that is, I feel absolutely morally obliged today to still do absolutely everything I can to take care of and serve this planet the best way I know how. And so I'll conclude with asking you two questions to just take with you as you leave tonight. Where do you go to listen to Mis Misa? And when, when was the last time that you went to listen? Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so the question is, I'm going to paraphrase, it's the scientists that I've spoken with, do they believe there's kind of a over-conservatism of estimates being put out there, uh, out of, and that many people are reticent, unlike Dr. Wanless, to talk about you know, what he sees is the, the real possible impact of, of, for example, the amount of sea level rise. And you know, there's, I'm going to take that by addressing the IPCC, which is seen as kind of the gold standard by most governments around the world. This is the measuring stick, what their projections are, which currently I think their worst case projection is one meter by 2100. Uh, and that's what governments use to plan for the future. Uh, but the thing is, is the IPCC, there's also a strong political element to it where a country like the United States, for example, giant fossil fuel producer, as these different studies come out and these projections come out, they're able to weigh in and kind of go for the, the lowball projection because that means we're going to be able to try to keep this economic consumption model uh, going a little bit longer. So there is a big political force within the IPCC that forces these projections lower, as well as the fact that uh, some of these people I spoke with who are directly involved in the IPCC openly admit that the data, but you know, they, they release an assessment every seven years, and by the time that those assessments come out, that data is 10 years old, along with it being consensus science. You know, one, one thing that I've written about recently is that there's a couple of different uh, things that have come out that have remind us of other possibilities. The International Energy Agency, for example, uh, not exactly a conservation group, right? This is you know, all about the fossil fuel industry, and that they released a report that has shown that maintaining our current fossil fuel economic system virtually guarantees a six degree centigrade rise in Earth's temperature before 2050. 
To add insult to injury, in 2017, analysis from oil giants BP and Shell indicated that they expected the plant to be 5C warmer by 2050. To give you an idea of what that looks like just cursorily, just a two-degree rise will leave dozens of the world's coastal megacities flooded, thanks primarily to melting ice sheets in Greenland and the Antarctic and thermal expansion of the oceans as they warm. There'll be 32 times as many heat waves in India, and nearly half a billion more people will suffer water scarcity. At three degrees, southern Europe will be in permanent drought, and the area burned annually by wildfires in the United States will sextuple. These impacts, it's worth noting, may already be baked into the system, even if every country that signed the Paris Climate Accord were to fully honor its commitments, which most of them are not currently doing. At four degrees, global grain yields could drop by half, most likely resulting in annual worldwide food crises, along with far more war, general conflict, and migration, even more than at present. So that gives you an idea of what's possible. And, you know, you don't, you don't hear of quite that dramatic of, of projections in the IPCC, but that is coming out in other ways. And when we look at the fact that, you know, to give you an idea also of how much, you know, what does 93% of all the heat we've added to the atmosphere being absorbed into the oceans, how much heat is that actually? If, that, if the oceans hadn't done that and that heat went into the atmosphere, the atmosphere today would be 97 degrees Fahrenheit hotter. And that's why wanless comes back to this time and time again is you're not going to get that heat out of the oceans. Yes, sir. So what, what do I think uh, would be a, a, perhaps the first year when there's no more Arctic sea ice in the summer, which is also referred to as a blue ocean event, at which point instead of all of that solar radiation being, the majority of it being reflected back into space, uh, it all goes directly into the Arctic, which warms even faster, which thaws out the subsea permafrost within which is held methane hydrates, massive methane releases. They're already happening, but they become uh, much more dramatic, uh, and we see potentially uh, an almost immediate doubling of the of CO2 equivalent in the atmosphere. Methane is 100 times more potent CO, greenhouse gas than is CO2. Um, and, and he also wondered, you know, what do I think about, you know, there has been some talk of, uh, you know, when is the blue ocean event going to occur, which is going to completely disrupt global climates, the global climate system uh, dramatically, much far more dramatic, dramatically than we're seeing today, as well as the idea of, you know, making predictions about human extinction. And, you know, I, I used to be in the prediction game and, you know, I felt like I had done enough research and had my own analysis that I could make these calls. And I can't. And I've been consistently wrong. And I, I went through a phase where for a long time I thought, Humans are absolutely going extinct. There's no question. We've basically replicated what happened that caused the Permian mass extinction, but we've done it in 250 years instead of eight to 80,000 years that that process took, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I felt certain of this. But today, the bottom line is we've never been here as a species. We don't know what's going to happen next. Um, thing we, one thing I would say for sure is things are going to get incredibly difficult. We are going to see ca increasingly catastrophic impacts. Humans may well go extinct, but we have no idea when, 
or exactly how, and we never know what's going to happen. And, and I struggled with that because I thought for sure after my research that, you know, I, I was, you know, Dr. Doom, you know, and I talk about this and I worked at Al Jazeera and uh, some of my colleagues named me Darmageddon. <laughs> and uh, in one way, I still am. But uh, I think the thing that shifted to me is there is mystery in the world and, and there's always an X factor and we don't know for sure when any of these things are going to happen. Being up on high mountain summits in the Olympics, uh, places where in the, in the winter uh, there'll be you know, well below zero temperatures, hurricane force winds, just pure rock, no soil, and there'll be this big tree growing straight out of the, seemingly growing straight out of the rock. So given half a chance, life persists. And so we, we don't know. You know, I'm not saying that that means for sure, like somehow we're going to make it through because we don't know that either, but we also don't know the opposite. What are the ramifications of sea level rise on nuclear power plants? Um, and given that most nuclear power plants are based near the ocean for using the water for cooling and uh, just using the Turkey Point nuclear plant in Florida that I referenced earlier, uh, I believe it's at six feet elevation, literally right on the coast. And instead of moving that plant, as Dr. Wanless and others suggest happens, um, they're adding a new reactor to it. Um, all of these plants, according to Dr. Wanless, all of these plants need to be moved and they need to be decommissioned and moved in these sites cleaned immediately. We're out of time. This should be a government-mandated and funded evacuation of those sites, mitigation of toxic sites, moving of all important archives, museums, and things like this to higher ground, including tens of millions of, of people in Florida alone that absolutely need to be relocated. And any politician that's not already actively involved in this and instead is denying it, he, he said they are being literally criminally negligent and need to be treated as such. Uh, and that, of course, includes all nuclear power plants around the world. It's insanity that these types of mitigations and adaptation measures aren't already in effect. And I've been told I can just take one more question. Yes, ma'am. Do I have people uh, in my life to talk to and process this with? I couldn't do this work if I didn't. I've done a lot of work with people in groups, grief work, uh, processing work, uh, and... and uh, you know, having a dog is also extremely helpful, I found, or other kind of pet. Um, and, uh, uh, but absolutely having people to talk to and that really, really understand it. And that's challenging because for me, I mean, to really get the gravity of what this means and then process through what comes up, um, it, it requires people that we have to all be on the same page. And I, I think it's imperative, and that's where community has to absolutely be one of those key fundamental pieces of, of our own personal resiliency. And I certainly encourage everybody to do that. So with that, thanks everyone very, very much for coming out tonight. You were just listening to Dodge Jamel on Climate Disruption. He spoke at Powell's Bookstore in Portland, Oregon. Dar Jamel is an award-winning independent journalist and author of The End of Ice. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and part of the nonprofit organization Rise Up. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. 
We feature such progressive voices as Bill McKibben, Sandra Steingraber, Naomi Klein, David Suzuki, Vandana Shiva, and Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs, MP3s, or written transcripts of today's program, Dar Jamail on Climate Disruption, just give us a call at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that number is 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order on our website, alternativeradio.org. Max White recorded the program. She is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. This is in contact with the test. One, two, three, four, five. We have entered radio space. This is a new and strange environment first. Just suddenly find yourself in orbit. Orbiting CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. Better life on Mars 
Turn round, round. 